It's Monday, February 14th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The threat of a Russian invasion in Ukraine is still keeping Western officials on high alert. President Biden and Vladimir Putin held an hour-long discussion over the weekend where Biden said there would be swift and severe consequences should they attack Ukraine. In the meantime, Russia has other ways of maintaining pressure through a destabilization campaign of cyber attacks, fake bomb threats, and economic disruption. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News, joins us for this and former President Trump's penchant for destroying records. Next, a woman in San Antonio named Jane became one of the first to undergo surgery for a treatment of Alzheimer's called deep brain stimulation. This is not a treatment to reverse the disease, rather, it is aimed at helping people maintain their memories and independence. The surgery involves implanting electrodes in the brain to keep the memory areas stimulated. The process uses a very sophisticated robotic system to make the precise movements needed while the patient is awake. Dr. Alexander Papanastasio, Associate Professor of Neurosurgery at UT Health San Antonio, was involved in the surgery and joins us for how it all works. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Yes, I do believe that he is prepared for an invasion. I also understand why the president of Ukraine wants to keep people calm and and uh, that he wants his economy not to suffer. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Well, there was a lot of action over the weekend with the Russia-Ukraine crisis, but still no ultimate action. Uh, officials are increasingly worried that Russia will invade. It just hasn't happened yet. Uh, the forces on the uh, Russian side, on the Ukraine border, they just keep getting more and more troops there. I think they're at 100,000 troops, something like that, about 80% of the force that they need to invade. And uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan over the weekend said that you know, if an invasion began, it could be missiles and bombs uh, followed by ground forces. Jake Sullivan gave a pretty stark warning on Friday from the White House press room saying that the United States, while believing Putin hasn't made up a final decision on whether or not he's going to invade Ukraine, that the possibility was imminent, that it could happen before the Olympics are over, which is something there had been a lot of speculation that People thought that Putin would wait until after the Olympics so as not to cast a shadow over the Olympics being hosted by his ally in China, President Xi, except for now we think that it could happen sooner. And so there was a real stark warning from Sullivan encouraging Americans to leave the country if they are in Ukraine, telling them we won't be able to send troops in to rescue them. And so really turning up the pressure, it seems, on what is this building, what we think is building to, which is a, a, an eventual Russian invasion of Ukraine. And President Biden and Putin did speak on Saturday. Also, they they, were, they had a call. They said if it was uh, about an hour long and President Biden warned him, said there's going to be swift and severe action or cons- consequences if they do invade. They want to keep the option of diplomacy. They hope to solve something like that. But Biden said they're ready for other scenarios. Now, if something happens U.S. forces would be used only through NATO or we would send an individual force there. How, how would that look like? So Ukraine is not a NATO country. In fact, that's probably why all of this is happening, because we have said Ukraine can join NATO and Putin doesn't want them in there. But there are other nearby NATO countries. Poland, Romania are two of the of the ones that are nearby. And our NATO treaty says that if one of them is attacked, we have to go help defend them. 
So an attack on their next door neighbor is something cause of alarm. And so if that happens, we will have troops in NATO countries in a defensive posture, meaning they're there making sure Russia doesn't get to their borders. But President Biden and uh, Jake Sullivan again on Friday reiterated the U.S. will not send troops to Ukraine to help the Ukrainians fight the Russians. We've sent equipment, we've sent weapons, but we won't be sending troops and they don't anticipate American troops fighting Ukraine, you know, Russian troops on behalf of Ukraine. And, and to your point that you made last week, right, you know, Russia has other ways of maintaining pressure on Ukraine through cyber attacks, uh, fake bomb threats. There's reports of hundreds of fake bomb threats, uh, economic disruption. That's one big thing. They're, they're super vulnerable on the economic side. Ukraine is. That's right. And so we expect that if they do attack to see um, cyber uh, in full, you know, attacks as well, not just in Ukraine, but potentially in other NATO allied countries. Germany is one where they're quite concerned about it, given its proximity that they could try to further disrupt the allies by, by using cyber attacks against them. And uh, there was also a, a piece on NBC.com uh, that was interesting, NBCnews.com that was interesting too. This is you know, a lot of the residents in Ukraine are kind of in this calm standby mode. They've been under the looming threat of Russia for a long time now, and they, they don't think that Putin will invade, but, you know, it's <laughs> they're kind of ready for anything, but they're kind of still just living their daily lives. I guess there's really nothing else to do there. Yeah, that's that's correct. You know, our folks on the ground in Kiev uh, were telling us that the, the the people there don't seem alarmed. They're not out panic buying um, and they're not evacuating, mostly because they seem to think it's not going to happen. And if right. it does happen, uh, they'll have time to get away. Finally, for the week, I just wanted to talk about President Trump. There's a lot of reports that he had a habit of destroying documents, including flushing some down the toilet. Uh, I guess that he took about 15 boxes of items from the White House that the National Archives wanted back. Uh, President Trump for himself said that they were magazines, uh, articles, uh, some of those love letters to North Korea, uh, things like that. But, uh, you know, once again, it's all kind of on the cusp of illegality um, and, and President Trump, you know, just maintaining more uh, innocence on that. That's right. You know, these records laws, the Presidential Records Preservation Act, really are things that there's not much of an enforcement mechanism. It's very difficult to prosecute someone for breaking these laws. It's really just been followed in the spirit by the president since they've been enacted. And President Trump doesn't really follow things in the spirit very often, we found, while he was president. And now that he's left office, still not quite interested in always following things that require sort of the spirit of the law. And so the, the archives, was, which he said was a very agreeable situation, took some of these records back. There were reports that he might have flushed some down the toilet. We knew for a long time that he liked to rip things up. So uh, might not have had the best preservation uh, practices in his White House. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You know, it sounds really unique when you first hear about it, the idea of doing awake brain surgery, but it turns out to be a very routine thing that's been done since the 1920s and 1930s routinely. Joining us now is Dr. Alexander Papanastasio, Associate Professor of Neurosurgery at the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Papanastasio. Hi, I'm happy to be here. I want to talk about some really interesting work that you guys are doing there at UT Health San Antonio, working uh, on Alzheimer's and, and people uh, trying to help, maybe not to the regression of the disease, but at least manage the symptoms and what's going on. And what we're talking about is DBS. Uh, so this is deep brain stimulation. 
And what you guys are doing, I guess you guys are going to be doing this with a, a number of people, but you just performed the first surgery for this where you're implanting a, a device in a person's brain with uh, early mild Alzheimer's in hope of stimulating the brain. And, and I'm, as I mentioned, just keeping those symptoms to a minimum as best as possible. Some really interesting stuff. So, doctor, if you could help us walk through some of this, what are we doing with this? Well, so the first point, of course, is that you know there are uh, medical treatments for Alzheimer's, but but they don't uh, delay uh, progression and help with some of the symptoms. And so, you know, one of the holy grails in the field of medicine is to try and find a a better treatment for Alzheimer's disease, and that's what we're we're after. And um, it turned out that you know this was found a little bit serendipitously when Dr. Lozano uh, in Toronto was looking for a target for treating obesity with deep brain stimulation, he uh, was at a target that was right next to the fornix. And people that he implanted for that pilot trial said their thinking seemed a little bit clearer and their memory seemed a little bit better. And he had an aha moment where he said, oh, I wonder if we could use this for uh, memory disorders. And then they began trying to target the fornix in particular to see if it could help in patients with Alzheimer's, which is a memory disorder, of course, among other deficits that go along with Alzheimer's. So uh, that was sort of the genesis of the uh, study. And then they did a a pilot study uh, with, I believe, about six people. And from there, they went to the first advanced trial called Advance 1. And the purpose of Advance 1 was to look at safety. So it's always the first step in any medical trial for a device trial. Uh, You know, was it possible to target the structure in a safe way? It turns out that the technique that we're using deep brain stimulation is a a very common technique for other disorders. It's the standard of care for Parkinson's disease as well as essential tremor. It's also a uh, well-known and well-used technique uh, for epilepsy that doesn't respond to medicines and can't be cured by taking out a part of the brain. Deep brain stimulation of the thalamus is helpful for epilepsy as well. And so among neurosurgeons, there's a subspecialty called stereotactic and functional neurosurgery, and we get, uh, we're the sort of neurosurgeons who get used to using special techniques to minimally invasively place electrodes or other catheters or probes uh, in the brain to treat uh, disorders uh, like what we just described right. above. And so the first surgery that you guys performed, you were, you helped, you were part of this whole team. It was a woman from San Antonio in her 70s. She goes by the name of Jane. Tell me a little bit about her and, and her condition and why she was a good candidate for this. Well, the, the first off is that, you know, for early Alzheimer's, you know, she had noticed problems with her memory, which is why she originally went to her doctor to get a diagnosis and see if she had an issue. But if you were to meet her, you know, she's a very charming person and you wouldn't be able to tell just talking to her. You know, she can certainly, you know, remember, you know, most things about her life and in normal conversation, you wouldn't notice anything. But part of the team includes a neuropsychologist, and they do a formal assessment of somebody's memory uh, using various uh, scales and uh, tests that have been developed. And uh, then they're able to detect, you know, what type of uh, memory problem she has. Also, prior to entering the trial, a person first has to be on a stable dose of one of the medicines for Alzheimer's disease. Those are the acetylcholine uh, inhibitors and have the mild Alzheimer's, and then that's a reason to uh, move forward. As part of the study, they also have a lumbar puncture uh, where we look at uh, cerebrospinal fluid to see if it has typical markers of Alzheimer's in it as well. So she was a good candidate for this. And, and this has to be done with people with mild Alzheimer's. I mean, I guess if the progression has gone too far, you can't really slow it down enough, right? 
that's our understanding at this time. We wanted to start with people who had mild Alzheimer's to try and make their memory better. The further the disease progresses, the harder it is to treat. And so in a trial like this, where we're trying to establish this as a new treatment, we thought that you know the best target was early Alzheimer's, where you'd be more likely to be able to have an impact with a treatment like this, especially one that you know, as far as we know, is not expected to uh, delay progression or cure it. It's just expected to help with memory and minimize symptoms. Tell me a little bit more about the actual procedure, because as I mentioned, you were involved in this. You guys use a state-of-the-art robotic system. You know, working in the brain is obviously very, very delicate work. And you use this robot to make the, the precision implantation of the device in the brain. Yeah, that's right. So the, the technique that we're using is, uh, is called stereotaxy. And uh, the general principle of it is that, of course, we can get a brain MRI to see the structures in the brain that we would like to target, uh, in this particular case, the fornix. And then what we do is we apply what's called a stereotactic frame, and we fit that to the patient. And what that means uh, in lay terms, as you can imagine, there are four pins that go through the skin and fix the frame to the bone so that there's a rigid transformation between the patient in the patient's head and this frame. And then then what you can do is you can do an intraoperative image with a localizer on the frame, and then you can know where that frame is in 3D space. And once you've done that image to know where your frame is and the frame is fixed to the person's head, well, then, of course, you can know where things are in 3D space uh, underneath the skin deep within someone's uh, brain. Because the whole point of this is that we need to get an electrode far into the brain, and we want to do that as minimally invasively as possible. So we're not actually going to see where the electrode goes. We're just going to know where it goes based on this system. And what the robot adds to that is that the robot is a robotic arm where uh, this is the Renishaw Neuromate robot. It has very high accuracy of less than 0.5 millimeters of error. So that's a very small error. And uh, what it is, is it's a robotic arm that we can push a button and the robotic arm goes into just the right position to deliver the electrode to the right spot with uh, minimal error. And so that's the use of the robot uh, for the procedure. And you mentioned how it's minimally invasive, right? Yeah, I think... uh, from my understanding, depending on, you know, the hairline of the subject and all, uh, you might not even see anything, maybe a small bump or something like that. So really don't see too much uh, of the after effects. Yeah, that's right. So there's a, there's a small incision, and then we make a dime-sized opening uh, in the bone, which is what we put the uh, electrode through. And in that opening, we have a little plastic fixture that secures the electrode in place so that it will be at the right depth. And that fixture has a little cap to it. And so that's the teeny little bump. So for a person who's bald like myself, you might see the small bump or you might see a healed incision. But for somebody who's got a full head of hair, uh, well, of course, it's behind the hairline and you wouldn't notice it at all unless uh, unless you were looking for it and knew it was there. (laughs) Okay. So we've got this device implanted into Jane. How is she doing now? And what's the rest of the study looking like? Well, actually, before we go on to that, before we leave the procedure, One of the things that's interesting and unique about the procedure is that it's done awake, and we also look for responses during the surgery. You know, it sounds really unique when you first hear about it, the idea of doing awake brain surgery, but it turns out to be a very routine thing that's been done since the 1920s and 1930s routinely. And so the first point that most people might be familiar with is that the brain doesn't have sensation, and so it's not going to hurt as you put an electrode through the brain. The parts that can hurt are the scalp and the covering of the brain, and the scalp can be anesthetized with local anesthetic. So the first thing we do is we sedate somebody and apply local anesthetic all around the scalp and and to where the incision is going to be, and then we let the sedation wear off, and then people are awake usually with, you know, minimal or no pain. 
Um, and then, you know, we go through the procedure of, you know, making the small incision and opening the hole. You know, the one thing is that when we use the drill, it can be a little bit like going to a dentist where the vibration of the drill, you can hear it because it vibrates through your bone near the, uh, near the uh, bones of the ear, of course, right. as well. So it sounds kind of loud, but it doesn't hurt. And then once we place the electrode, we're looking for confirmation that we're in the right place. So we have this stereotactic system with a robotic arm, but we also want to confirm through other ways that we got to the right place. And the first thing is that when we start to stimulate through the electrode, sometimes people have memories or vague memories. And that was true for Jane. She did have some vague memories when we turned the stimulator on. And that helped us know that we were near the fornix because there are very few places in the brain where you would expect a response like that. The other thing is that the fornix is right next to an area called the hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus is involved in controlling heart rate and blood pressure. So when we turn the stimulator on, if we're in the right place, we expect to see the heart rate uh, go up a little bit and the blood pressure, uh, we expect to see that go up a little bit too. And so we saw both those things, you know, in her case that helped us know we were in the right place. And then once we feel confident that we've got to the right place, then we take another image with something called an O-arm. It's like an intraoperative CT scanner. And then we can see where the electrode is and confirm that it went where we wanted it to go. So then, then, of course, after that, then we, uh, and can, we can close up. And one of the yeah. things that's nice about being able to do this awake is certainly the idea of being able to have confirmation that you got to the right place. Right. It's also nice to be able to avoid general anesthesia, which makes the recovery easier. And sometimes people with dementia can feel like their memory got a little bit worse uh, after uh, general anesthesia. It's certainly safe to do general anesthesia. It has to be done all the time for various procedures, but the less we can do it, the better. And so that's sort of the the wrap-up of how it is uh, awake. But it's yeah. also very similar to other awake procedures we do. For example, mapping where someone's language is to take out a brain tumor or uh, in movement disorder surgery, uh, testing where a lead is to treat Parkinson's disease or essential tremor. Uh, and a lot of those procedures can also be done asleep, but there's certainly a possibility of doing them awake as well. And so, uh, and as I mentioned, just to, to wrap it every, all up, you know, the ongoing study, what are we looking for as far as Jane's progression oh, yeah. and, and all that? So we all want to know as soon as possible, is it going to work? And the answer is we're not going to know because the endpoint for the study is called the Integrated Alzheimer's Disease Rating Scale. It's another one of those tools that the psychologists use. That's our primary endpoint for the study. And the time that we're going to be looking at is one year after the implant and stimulator has been on. And, of course, the progression of Alzheimer's is slow. And so over one year, there should be enough progression that we can tell a difference between patients where the stimulator's on and hopefully has slowed it down versus patients where it hasn't been slowed down. But ideally, the patient and we ourselves will not know if it's on or not. Of course, it's a double-blinded study, so you know I won't know if the thing's on or not, and she won't be able to tell, and uh, the progression of the disorder is slow enough. So I think the big picture here is that we won't know for about a year. And uh, once there's enough people, uh, there's going to be 90 patients in the first part of the study and 210 total. Once all 210 have gotten to a year, then that's when we unblind it and tell people, hey, you were on or you were off. After a year, uh, everybody can be turned on. Uh, so it won't be that people had a procedure and won't have any uh, stimulation at all. Dr. Alexander Papanastasio, Associate Professor of Neurosurgery at the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.